Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Chad Thornhill. Welcome, Dr. Thornhill. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Thornhill was my Greek and apologetics professor. He's been on um, the podcast. This is his third time on our podcast, and I'm very excited to have him and very excited that he accepted um, my third request to be with us today. For those who haven't um, heard your previous episodes, would you give them a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. I'm the chair of theological studies for the School of Divinity at Liberty University. Uh, so I oversee our theology, apologetics, church history programs at undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral levels. I also teach primarily in the areas of apologetics and New Testament Greek, but I also teach uh, some classes from time to time in theology and in New Testament. Um, my first book was The Chosen People, Election, Paul, and Second Temple Judaism, uh, which was published by InterVarsity Press, and uh, that was also the subject of my dissertation. Awesome. And today we want to talk about your new book, Greek for Everyone. Um, I took you for Greek and we're not going to talk about uh, my experience in Greek, but uh, <laughs> um, I think this book is great because it looks like you wrote it just for, like you said in the title, everyone. Um, what was what inspired you to write this one? Well, the, the backstory behind it's kind of long, but we teach the, the class that... Um, I had you in. We teach a class called Greek Language Tools for our graduate students, and it's for students who are not in our full uh, language track. And uh, so students that do the whole languages do grammar, syntax, and exegesis, but for students that don't, we teach a tools-based approach. Um, so this book, after there's, you know, I won't go into the whole backstory, but there was a series of um, Kind of events right behind each other that led led to the writing of this um, with the goal of helping facilitate how we teach that in the classroom better um, so what's unique about this book i i really tried to um, do a couple of things one to integrate some of the more recent uh, research on how the greek language works um, there's actually been you know you think about this is a language that's 2,000 years old, but there have been some pretty uh, important developments in the last 20 or 30 years that have changed slightly um, how we think about some aspects of the language. And there weren't any really resources for a broader audience that incorporated that. Um, the other is that often introduction to language study books are very focused basically on helping students to be able to sort of site translate. So you learn a lot of vocabulary, you learn about what we what we call morphology, which is how words are formed, and there's a lot of memorization. Um, the, the goal of this book, because there's so many resources out there now to help people um, who want to just integrate this into their Bible study and don't have 
you know, the two or three year process that it takes to go through grammar, syntax, exegesis um, is to really lean on some of those resources. So there's, there's a ton of free digital resources. There's also really good Bible software programs like Logos and BibleWorks um, that help with some of that morphology information. So I wanted to help people understand how the language works um, to give them some insight into some of the places where that matters for how we interpret things. Um, so to, to get them to the payoff a little bit more quickly than a traditional approach. And then there's also a few chapters at the end that uh, more broadly deal with what we would call hermeneutical issues. So just how we read the Bible, you know, in historical context and in its cultural context, how we develop theological thought out of that, how we apply that to our lives today. Um, so rather than just focusing on, you know, the minutia of grammar to really help people to, to get deeper uh, into, their, into their understanding of the New Testament in general. Uh, so that's the subtitle is, you know, Inter Introductory Greek for Bible Study and Application. That's the main focus of the book is to help folks become better readers of the Bible. So it really is geared not just at seminary students, though I think it's useful there, um, or for students in general, but uh, just folks in the church who, who want to develop, um, you know, some more serious Bible study skills or even pastors who maybe haven't had language training or just need a refresher. I'm hoping it'll be useful for, for lots of different folks uh, in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Now you say in your introduction that learning Greek is like learning, well, learning a new language is like learning to dance. Um, <laughs> most people probably wouldn't think of Greek in relationship to dancing, but <laughs> how do you make that connection? Yeah. So dancing has rules, right? Um, so different dances have different sequences of steps. Uh, different dances have different tempos that you're dancing to. Um, and so I think, I think one of the lines I use is, you know, if, if you don't have the right mode that you're in, um, you might be trying to waltz and end up tangoing or something. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, language is the same way. Language has rules. Unless we've studied language, we don't always know that. Um, so language has rules. It has a certain structure to it, but there's also an artistic side to language. Mm -hmm. So just learning the rules um, doesn't necessarily equip you to getting the full force of what, what someone is saying. Um, so in a lot of grammar approaches, they're very heavy on the rules, and you don't really develop the art side of it until you get to what we call exegesis. And exegesis is just a word that means taking meaning out, essentially. It's, it's interpreting within, a, within the context of what's being said. Um, and what you find as you go through learning the language is that, you know, some things become clearer, um, but some things also, because there's an art side to it, actually we find that there are options um, for how we interpret certain phrases and certain passages. And sometimes, you know, really big theological points hang on a word as small as a preposition. You know, what does this preposition mean and how do we interpret it in the context? And so when we're relying on, you know, translations exclusively, we don't always have a sense of 
the different shades of meaning that a particular passage could take. Um, so, you know, one of the things I recommend in the book, for example, is I want help. I want to help people understand the basics of the language, but also to help them understand why it's important that we use multiple translations. If we're not primarily reading the Greek or the Hebrew text, you know, comparing translations often helps us give, you know, a window into those different shades of meaning that we wouldn't otherwise have. And different translation groups will translate things differently because they're there might actually be options, you know, for understanding it. Um, so I think in, in that way, that's kind of how the analogy works is there are rules, you know, that govern it, but there's also an artistic side. And to really read the Bible well is to, I think, understand both of those in some sense together. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a very great point to bring out because um, especially with translations, I think that's becoming a, a big apologetics issue. Um, in the 21st century, well, I think it's always been an apologetics issue, but um, when I was talking to a pastor on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about sexuality, and he brought up the point of how we translate um, pornea. Is that, I'm saying, am I saying it right? Pornea, yeah, it's close enough. Pornea, yeah. <laughs> um, how we translate that. And his translation was uh, rape, incest. And it's it's amazing how the translations will change everything about a specific lifestyle, um, which I I told him I disagreed with his translation of it. Um, but I would will use that. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. <laughs> people use that um yeah. the different translations to kind of get away from different right. things or validate certain things that I think scripture is clear about. Yeah. Um, One of the things, you know, I, most pastors that I've encountered, this this isn't their intention, but, you know, one of the things that um, we, I want our pastors to know Greek, I want them to use it, but, but sometimes what you find is it can sort of become um, a smokescreen, you know, so I know Greek, you don't, therefore, because I'm using this word, you know, it, there's, there's, I think, part part of it can be like an intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. um, so how do regular folks, you know, deal with an objection like that if they don't know one way or the other, you know, they haven't studied it, they don't know one way or the other. Um, so one of the things we talk about in the, in the book is, I say we, it's me, nobody else wrote it, but one <laughs> of the things I talk about in the book is, um, you know, word studies and how we use you know, lexicons, how lexicons are different than concordances. You know, a concordance is going to tell you how um, a certain translation translated a word in different contexts. But a lexicon is going to tell you what the possible meanings of that word is. Um, I think, you know, the, the Pornea example is a good one because it is debated. There's a couple of things that would lead me away from that interpretation. Um, one, it doesn't mean that that word might not be used that way in certain contexts, but generally in the New Testament, there's, um, I think, a broader application that's in mind. The other thing that, that plays into that is the New Testament being a Jewish document, you know, we have to think, this is where thinking about cultural context comes into play. Um, we have to think about what that term would have entailed for a Jewish person, and the the, the texts, the Old Testament texts that Paul draws upon when he's talking 
um, a Christian se sexual ethic in First Corinthians, for example, um, you know, include things like incest and adultery, but porneia was was more of an umbrella term as Paul used it for sexual immorality and gender uh, in in general. So any form of you know the Jewish sexual ethic was was fairly clearly the only place that sexual intimacy should happen is is within a marriage union between a man and a woman and so that's the background you know that's the cultural context that Paul is using that in so when you when you look at the lexical evidence how our lexicons you know typically define a word and when you look at Paul's Paul's cultural context i think those two things together um you know, end up giving it, I think, what we would consider a more traditional kind of interpretation as as the likely sense that Paul um, intended by it. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know speaks to the point you were you were making. You know, looking at the big picture and culture, because I think you know when you use the tools, um, you know, the Bible software. If you're just looking at the word for kind of like looking for a word for word translation from Greek to English, it's kind of going to be difficult. Um, and so then you have those problems like, oh, well, maybe this is incest without looking at the broader context, as you were saying. Right. Yeah. And so there, there really is a, you know, a balance that takes place. Um, we need to think about particular words and what and what they mean but one of the things I say in the book that um, I say in class from time to time and you you might remember me saying this is words don't mean anything right so words words don't have a meaning words have a range of meaning and the only way that we know what a particular word means is by how it's activated in a particular context so you know take a, take the word ball for example um, and I, I think we probably use this example, but a, you know, a ball, the, when I say the word ball, most people maybe have, you know, a round object in mind. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, but then we have a football, right? And when, when the word foot is attached to ball, that means something slightly different. Um, if I'm talking about a ballroom or someone's getting dressed up and going to a ball, you know, that's, that's a formal event that's might have dancing involved or, you know, a dinner or whatever. Uh, and in baseball, we talk about balls and strikes. So those are, you know, at least four different shades of meaning that the world and ball never means all of those things together. And the only way that we know which meaning is intended is by the context that it's used in. So, you know, for, for how that applies to how we study scripture, we have to think about context in terms both of you know the words around it we might call that the literary context what kind of piece you know what kind of a piece of literature that is this is it a letter is it a gospel is it a prophetic book um, we have to think about the context that the word is put in but then we also have to step back and think about the broader historical and cultural and social issues that were at play in the world when that particular book was written, you know, so taking the book of Romans, what's what's going on in the first century uh, in the Greco-Roman world and in the in the Jewish world around that time. And all of those things have to inform what 
what we think is going on in Paul's letter. The, the danger is when we don't do that, we often are going to end up reading our context into it. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that New Testament scholars often refer to as anachronism. Uh, that just means we're reading something from later backwards. And so if we aren't really thinking about what did this mean when it was written to the original audience as sort of our first step for interpreting the Bible, we can end up reading simply you know our own beliefs or our own cultural issues into it without first thinking about what that meant then and there to the original audience mm -hmm. and um i think this is something you said in our greek class too that um kind of always stuck with me as far as how we apply it you i, I believe you said sometimes we get the exegesis or the interpretation part right but then we make more errors in trying to apply it to modern day culture yeah yeah and so that's that's something i try to help folks walk through in the book and that's uh, it's more complicated than i think we often admit it is um so you know there are some things that that seem pretty straightforward uh like you know love your neighbor as yourself um you know there's there's a particular thing in mind but even there you have to ask well what does love mean right mm -hmm. um in our culture maybe doesn't always define that in in the biblical sense so what what did the author mean when he said love your neighbor as yourself what kind of love are they talking about and and part of that's understanding the word that's used but part of it's bigger than that it's, it's understanding the context and understanding you know the culture into which they were speaking um, there, are, there are other times that what's happening is really strange to us, and it's not an issue that we necessarily deal with in our, in our culture. So we, I think, often struggle to know why does this matter uh, to us. Mm -hmm. and I think typically when we, when we dig into the context well, that usually becomes clearer. So, you know, two good examples of that would be you know, in First Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, food sacrifice to idols, and this is one of the examples I give in the book. Um, you know, that isn't in most of the modern world. That isn't something that's still happening, uh, especially in America, right? We don't, we just, we don't go to the market and have to wonder was this, you know, hamburger patty sacrificed to an idol or not? Mm -hmm. um, but that was an issue then, and so you know, rather than ignoring it we need to ask, why is Paul talking about this? Why was it important? What issue was he addressing? And, you know, what, what, so to speak, uh, might we be able to derive from that? Um, or, or thinking about, um, you know, the issue of head coverings, for example, um, which Paul talk, also talks about in 1 Corinthians. There are some churches that say women have to, you know, have their head covered when they're in church, and there are different expressions of that. And they're taking it literally, um, often without thinking, why is Paul talking about this? What was the cultural issue involved there? And then from, from having that understanding, asking what does this mean for us today? Um, so, you know, places where that might become tricky is, is on the issue of sexuality. So sometimes it's said, you know, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality or Paul never talked about um, homosexuality when they interpret as you mentioned when they interpret certain words um, in certain ways that aren't how they're normally interpreted 
And so, you know, we have to ask, well, where are they getting this from? We, what you'll notice about Paul is he's often quoting from the book of, Le of Leviticus, all right? Mm -hmm. And we believe the, the Bible is authoritative and true, but most Christians might also say something like, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so if Paul is quoting Leviticus to, to tell us what it means to have a Christian sexual ethic, um, you know, that, that actually requires that we maybe think deeper or rethink some things in terms of how we, we would articulate it. He's saying this still matters for Christians. Um, the Old Testament, you know, just doesn't get completely thrown out uh, when, when the New Testament is written. And that's not how I think most Christians would answer that question if you were to ask them, does the law still mean anything to us? So, yeah, there's, there's definitely layers to this and, um, you know, aspects that complicate it that often I think we don't fully appreciate. And so when, when those questions get raised, um, if it's not something we've thought through, often we don't, we don't either don't have an answer to it or our knee jerk reaction maybe is just to sort of reassert what we believe um, without having, having thought out and having good reasons for, for why we believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was actually one of the points that, um, in the conversation that I referenced earlier, uh, which Jesus didn't say anything about it. And my response to that was, I, I, I've, I hear that a lot. I don't know if that's becoming the go-to answer. Like yeah. the red letters are have right. president, everything in scripture. Um, yeah. <laughs> but my response to that was, well, Jesus didn't say anything about rape either. Right. So on that same on that same basis, then rape would be okay. But we would say, no, of course, rape is okay. Yeah. You know, what precedence would that would we have to use that if we are making Jesus' words the authority and everything else in the Bible like comes second? You know, yeah. um, so I think the 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 response to that was then ethics has to be first. Mm. Then we have to when Jesus is silent, then we have to rely on ethics, which is problematic because where do we base our ethics um so it's it's interesting uh how in the interpretation of scripture is going and how kind of like if jesus didn't say it well then um we can't really say whether it's right or wrong in a sense yeah, yeah. and and two things that you know i've i've brought up in that on that is one um, again? Jesus is a first-century Jew. <laughs> so what you know? What kind of sexual ethic would Jesus have had? He would have had a first-century Jewish sexual ethic. Now that doesn't mean Jesus never questions the beliefs of other Jews during this during you know his ministry. We see that all through the Gospels. Um, but he doesn't question everything, right? He's he's not just starting from scratch. There's there's a lot of continuity that we find between Jesus and um, other Jewish writings in the first century. So, so one, I think the fact that he's silent on it means he's not questioning what the traditional Jewish sexual ethic was. You know, the second thing is he doesn't address it directly, but when Jesus teaches about marriage, he basically gives two options. Um, he says, you know, you can be married and not commit adultery, be faithful except for, um, you know, and we usually think about 
um, the exception as, as adultery. And that doesn't mean, you know, abuse or other things don't, don't factor into that. Right. Jesus didn't talk about that. Uh, that wasn't the context of what he's saying, but the other option he says, you know, be a eunuch for the kingdom. And there's a couple of ways you can read that. But one is that he's just talking about celibacy. You know, he's basically saying you can be married or you can be celibate. Um, so again, he didn't speak directly to that issue, but there are things that he did speak towards in that arena and everything that he says seems to reconfirm what a traditional, um, Jewish teacher would have believed during that period. And the, you know, the reason that they believe it isn't just because they were Jews, but they're pulling that from the old Testament. So if we're whole canon Christians, you know, we have to think about, the entirety of how the Bible speaks to us and not just these isolated, you know, proof texts and word games that we do to try to um, either justify certain things or to make Christianity more appealing to the culture. And there's certainly, you know, I think part of what people react against on that issue today too, is that there have been ways that Christians have interacted with those kinds of questions very poorly. in the past. So, but that doesn't mean we have to do an about face uh, just, just to make up for bad tactics, um, bad rhetoric that has been directed at people previously. I I definitely agree. Um, One of the things, and one of the questions that um, I get a lot here is how do we interpret um, the new Testament in light of the old and Uh, That really kind of has something to do with the book, but not quite. But since we were kind of going down that path uh, with the Old Testament, anyway, I thought I'd throw that question out. Um. It does, actually. Um, So when I talk about interpreting the New Testament in context, I talk about uh, the chapters called Bridging Contexts, plural. Um, So when we think about context, there are layers to this. There's the historical context, there's the social context, you know, how did people relate to one another? Um, one of the, one of the things that really has popped out to me in light of my dissertation is how heavy Jew Gentile dynamics are in the new Testament and something that I just completely overlooked before because I hadn't been paying attention to it. But, you know, there's quite a bit of heavy theology and, and counter-cultural, um, uh, you know, movements more or less in the New Testament that you just don't see unless you start looking for them. Um, but once you start realizing that they're there, they're everywhere. I mean, it's every gospel. It's the book of Acts. It's almost all of Paul's letters with exception of, you know, his personal letters. Um, it's first and second Peter. It's Revelate. It, it's Hebrews. It's everywhere. Um, then there's the cultural context which is, you know, what did, what did people believe? Um, you know, what were their values? What were their practices? And then I talk about the literary context, you know, what genre it is, et cetera. But there's also what I refer to as the intertextual context and the canonical context. So um, how those are different, when, when we talk about intertextuality, we're talking basically about the relationship between two texts. Um, so an example um, Matthew in Matthew chapter two, I forget the exact reference off the top of my head, but he, he quotes from Hosea 11, one, uh, when he's talking about Jesus coming, going down to and coming back from Egypt, um, as a result of Herod 
you know, looking for him basically. And he says, out of Egypt, he, he quotes Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So when we, when we think about intertextuality, whenever we see a New Testament writer quoting from the Old Testament, what we don't do enough that, that should be really our first reaction is to go look at that passage in context. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that particular example is interesting because in Hosea 11, uh, Hosea is talking about Israel. Israel is the son that has been called out of Egypt. And in Matthew 2, Matthew's talking about Jesus. So, you know, that raises a question, what do we do with that? Um, but if we don't start there, we don't know that that question exists. Um, the, the other thing is, is with the canonical context, is to think about how this particular book um, or passage fits within, you know, the whole canon. So one way to me that's really helpful to do that is to think in terms of the big story of Scripture. Where does this passage fit within the big story? Um, but this is also where we would, you know, think about what is, you know, what does Deuteronomy have to do with the book of Matthew or what does Exodus have to do with um, with the book of Matthew. So it really forces us to think outside of just the particular thing that we're reading and how this fits together and knits together with what else is said in scripture. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes the relationship between an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage is very straightforward. And sometimes like in Hosea 11, it's not. Um, so with that particular example, you know, when you, when you look at the context of Matthew one to four, and I, I talk about, I think I use this illustration too. Um, but the, the really amazing thing about, and really Matthew one to five, um, is Jesus is sort of retelling Israel's story. Um, and, and specifically he's retelling Moses story and Jesus, he's presenting Jesus as the new Moses. So, um, you know, Jesus is born and he, there's this command that's given to kill male children because Herod wants Jesus dead. The same thing happens in the book of Exodus with Moses, right? And Moses is rescued from that. Jesus goes down to Egypt and comes out of Egypt. And that's, you know, a portrayal in a sense of the Exodus. Um, then Jesus is baptized, right? He, he goes under and comes out of the water, which is sort of like the parting of the Red Sea. And then Jesus goes in chapter four, he's tempted in the wilderness, right? What happens to Israel uh, after they're delivered, they wander for 40 years. Jesus is there for 40 days. And, and then in Matthew five, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he starts teaching. He gives 10 teachings, which we refer to as the Beatitudes, you know, paralleling the 10 commandments mm-hmm. and then he talks about, uh, he hasn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Oh, by the way, let me tell you what that means. I'm going to reinterpret the Ten Commandments for you. It's not just about murder. It's about, you know, hate in your heart. It's not just about adultery. It's about lust in your heart. So, you know, there's the sense in which Matthew is weaving Jesus' story as as the new Moses. He's, he's reliving, in a sense, Israel's history. And he's revealing something about God in all of this uh, and something about himself as well. So when you when you put Matthew 2 in that context, I think Hosea 11, 1 makes more sense. The reason Matthew is quoting this is because he's showing how Jesus relives Israel's story. And at all the points where Israel fails, Jesus doesn't. 
Um, and that's how he wants his readers to understand who Jesus is as, as the Messiah. So, you know, to, to get all of that, you have to, you know, you have to see the signposts of what's going on. You have to see all the parallels between Exodus, which means you have to know something about the book of Exodus to see those. But then with that specific passage in Hosea 11, you also have to, you know, understand what Hosea is saying in his context and see how that's weaving into what Matthew is doing. Um, so it definitely isn't, you know, it requires a lot of, <laughs> a lot of thought and, and sometimes a lot of big picture ideas and sometimes a lot of focus on the details um, mm -hmm. to, to understand how all of that knits together. Yeah. And I know a, a common, one of the common struggles I think is, is how do we um, interpret the law in light of uh, the New Testament? And some people would say, like you said, we, we throw it out. Um, and then that's problematic because and when we interpret what Paul is telling us um, for um, as far as, you know, sexuality or how we treat people or, or the, the laws, I mean, the, the sins that he, you know, quotes in, in the New Testament, you, you have to think about it in light of uh, Leviticus. Um, mm -hmm. And then one would say, well, you eat pork. Yeah. Uh, you know how everybody likes to throw that one out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, it's it's really challenging for a, a lot of uh, everyday church goers when they're talking to unbelievers um, and trying not to seem like they're um, hypocritical in their interpretation of scripture. Right. Absolutely. How do you think we should uh, interpret Leviticus in light of the New Testament? Oh, goodness. So <laughs> I... Um, a verse that really shifted me in a big sense. And I, I really like the way um, Daniel Block is a, he's an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College. He's written a lot on the book of Deuteronomy and on Ezekiel. Uh, but he has a book called, I, I believe I'm getting the title right, The Gospel According to Moses. Um, and, and what he's really pushing back on is this wedge that, we've drawn between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but he has this line in there and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, he says something like, we need to stop asking what of the law applies to Christians today. And we need to start asking what of the law doesn't. Um, so we, we tend to, you know, sometimes you'll see it said, where you know the new testament reaffirms something from the law that's where we should follow it um so a, a verse that challenged my thinking on this was romans 8 1 to 2. um there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus why for or because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Uh, a lot of commentators take law there as principle. It's the word namos. And it's the same word that Paul has used in Romans 7 to talk about how the law, because of sin, didn't accomplish what God intended it to. Um, what, what I've leaned towards um, as a result of that is that Paul really is talking about the law there and he's talking about the law 
under two different places of authority or under two different spheres of influence, some New Testament uh, writers call them. The law operating apart from the spirit is under the influence of sin and death. The law operating within the spirit brings life. So Paul summarizes, I think, what that means. He summarizes it in Romans 13 and Galatians 6. He says, you know, to fulfill the law is to love, to love God and to love others. That's basically how we can boil it down. But he also quotes um, in a number of places in his letters from the law, telling Gentile Christians they need to, to obey these things. So, you know, to, to wrap up what that means, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that we need to pay attention to, Paul and, and Luke in the book of Acts both indicate that there was a different um, application, so to speak, of the law for Gentiles. So, you know, there's this Acts 15 council that takes place and they, they tell them, you know, avoid sexual immorality um, and avoid certain eating offenses. Uh, and those are the main things that you need to you need to watch out for. So we see Paul over and over again in his letters. You know, one of the major issues he brings up is sexual immorality. Um, and in Galatians 2, at least, there's this conflict over over food laws as well. Um, but he also quotes from the law in different places in First Corinthians and in Ephesians and tells uh, Gentile believers that they need to obey certain things. So I think, you know, the, the, the first thing is to recognize that it's it's more complicated than we've given it credit before. I think the other is to realize that it seems like the early church really did understand that there were things in the law that we should be paying attention to. And for Gentile believers, that doesn't mean everything. That doesn't mean we have to, you know, obey all the food laws. Again, Acts 15 doesn't doesn't tell us to do that. Um but it seems like there are principles that we should be paying attention to, you know. So a lot of what the law talks about is just economic fairness, for example. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, we don't have ox today, um, oxen, but that, that doesn't mean there aren't things there that should help us understand how we're to conduct ourselves, you know, in, in, in commerce. Um, so I've gained a deeper appreciation and, you know, the balancing act is, right, you don't want to fall into like the legalistic mentality where we have a bunch of rules to follow. But I think the Old Testament really does provide guidelines that we're supposed to be paying attention to and, and living. And I think the most important of those have been summarized for us in the New Testament. But that doesn't mean we stop reading the Old Testament, that we stop paying attention to it, that it doesn't have things still to teach us about you know how we're supposed to conduct ourselves today yeah that's very helpful um for those who are interested in getting your book well before i ask you that last question is there anything you want to share about your book that we haven't already addressed before i tell the people where they could get your book yeah i mean i think the biggest thing is i hope to to help people pay attention to the details and to pay attention to the big picture. And sometimes we're really good at one of those and, and often not at both. Um, so to understand that there is a unity to scripture, but there's also diversity present that not every book uses 
the same words or addresses the same topic in exactly the same way. There are different angles. There's different layers um, to what the Bible is saying. So to, to think, you know, to appreciate, to get into the nitty gritty of some of the details of the text while also not getting lost there um, and seeing how it connects to the big picture. That's, that's the main thing. If I could boil it down that I'm hoping people get out of the book. Um, so if it, it helps towards that end, then um, I'm happy. Awesome. Awesome. And we're going to be giving away a free copy of Dr. Thornhill's book. So stay tuned to uh, our social media outlets where we'll post how to win a copy of that book. Um, Dr. Thornhill, tell our listeners how they can get your book. Uh, it's sold wherever books are sold, according to the press release. Um, so <laughs> you, you probably can find a copy at your local bookstore or your local Christian bookstore. Uh, you can also get it off of Baker's website, Baker Books, or off of Amazon. Uh, Greek for Everyone is the title. And, you know, Barnes & Noble, all of those places are selling it as well. Awesome. And they can connect with you on social media. What's your Twitter um, handle? Twitter is at Chad Thornhill. Awesome. And you have a blog as well, right? I do. I, I, I feel bad to even mention it because it's been so long since I wrote anything. <laughs> um, but you can, you can find my website on my Twitter page as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again for uh, joining us for the Jude 3 Project podcast. Absolutely. Glad to. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it